This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and this week Dan is off sunning himself in the British Mediterranean and so he's been seamlessly replaced by Tom Selby from AJ Bell. Hello. This week we're going to avoid all talk of elections and Brexit and instead talk about bank scams, how you spend your cash in retirement and we're joined by investment expert Ryan Hughes from AJ Bell to talk about Terry Smith taking a step back. Hi there. So firstly this week saw the introduction of a new code for banks that means scam victims should be more likely to get their money back. That sounds like good news, Laura. You've been looking into this? It is good news. I think we can... Good good news story for once. I'm not the resident Eeyore. A good good news scam story. Quite rare. Yeah, that is quite rare. Um, Yeah, so banks have signed up to a voluntary code. So until now, if you were the victim of what is quite sexily called push payment fraud. That is sexy. Yeah, which basically just means bank transfer fraud. Um, Until now, you were pretty unlikely to get your money back. So last year, um, people lost around a million pounds a day to these kind of scams, and only 20% of that money is returned to people. Um, So banks typically refuse to refund people. So if Mm. your uh, debit or credit card gets scammed, anyone that's experienced that in the past um, will know that you're almost immediately refunded the money by your bank, but that's not the case with these transfer Mm. frauds. So now there's a new code that a lot of the big banks have signed up to, but not all, um, that kind of tips the scales back in consumers' favour and means that they're more likely to get refunded. That's exciting. Are there there any any types of um, fraud that won't be covered by this? So this specifically covers um, this push payment Mm. fraud, which is quite often where scammers will call up and they'll convince you they're from your bank or they're from the police and they'll convince you using very sophisticated methods um, to transfer your money to a different bank account using your online login or telephone banking. Um, Or sometimes it'll be where they've intercepted emails from you and give you different bank account details and you transfer money to a scammer's bank account. So that's what this code is specifically covering. Yeah, and uh, I, I saw um, there's quite an interesting article I think in the Sunday Times over the weekend. I don't know if I don't know if you guys saw it. It was with um, yeah. the with the was it the uh, Met Police Commissioner, I think, in charge quite... of economic fraud. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's one mm-hmm. of these jobs I didn't realise necessarily exists in the police, but clearly it clearly it does. Um, and she was being quite unsympathetic towards scam victims. I thought, kind of saying that this is a it's it's up to people to make sure that they're they're aware of this stuff and if, if and if you make a mistake and allow yourself to be defrauded then essentially it's that's on you and it, the police when the police won't necessarily come in and make sure that you're you're treated properly so is there is there anything i guess that people can people can do to protect themselves from these kind of these kind of scams do you think yeah there is stuff um that people can do that article actually the interview made me quite angry because mm. quite a lot of it was just very um blaming people that are victims of scams mm. and making out like it's really really easy to spot these scams yeah, and yeah. and that it's just people going like oh i can buy a really cheap car on ebay and i'm just going to yeah. transfer my money to this person and that is some of the scams but loads of the scams are really really sophisticated mm. now so you'll get a text and it'll appear as though it's from your bank and it'll mm. appear in a previous chain of messages from your bank but it's actually scammers that have managed to spoof that message or you'll get a call from your bank and it will appear as though it's from that number 
but it's actually scammers. And lots of people really dismiss these people that have yeah. been scammed and say, oh, they're just idiots and they weren't paying attention. But actually, the scammers are so sophisticated now that I think genuinely the most sophisticated scams the three of us in this room could easily be scammed mm. by. And we're people that work in the finance industry and, and you would assume more savvy to, to these kind of scams. So I found that article slightly frustrating because she was saying, oh, well, if the banks compensate everyone, then no one's going to take any care. Mm. But I don't think that's true. No one wants to go through the trauma of being scammed, do no, they? No, I, I agree. And th th you're right, the quality of those emails uh, and texts is absolutely amazing now, and it's yeah. very, very difficult to spot. And I think the bigger frustration when you talk to people who've gone through this is uh, I think it's the least likely crime to be investigated by the police force really? as well. So you've got uh, a, a real problem for consumers uh, and at the same time what appears to be a problem that's not necessarily always taken as seriously as it should be. Yeah, yeah so which um, has done loads and loads of work on this that's been really good that's actually led to this voluntary code being launched um, and they estimate that fewer than one in 20 cases reported to action fraud which is the police department that deals with this are actually solved. Wow. And so, yeah, that I think more needs to be done. But I'm hoping that this code means that because the onus is now on the banks and they're footing the bill for the, a lot of these scams, that they'll actually do more to prevent the scams in mm -hmm. the first place. Mm -hmm. Until now, it's been very easy for them yeah. to say, well, we're not going to refund you. And so then ultimately, it kind of doesn't really become their problem. Um, but it is worth pointing out that if you've been scammed any time before this week, then you're not covered by the code, so it's not retrospective. And that not all banks have signed up. So this is very much a kind of starting point but yeah. it's not the problem solved altogether and, and there'll, be, there'll be all sorts of other types of scams as well this, this is one very specific what, what was it called again push payment fraud i can't believe push. you've forgotten that. <laughs> i apologize <laughs> uh, so many so many terms to keep track with um, so that's one particular type of fraud but there'll be obviously all sorts of other different types of fraud which wouldn't be covered by by these rules yeah and there are caveats to what the banks will cover where they say if you've been grossly ne negligent or you've ignored repeat warnings about these scams then they won't refund you and so yeah. i think how they actually define that we'll, we'll have to wait and see what kind of cases they will refund and, and won't going forward as yeah. to seeing how far this refund goes yeah. is, it, is it is this just banks all of a sudden becoming nice guys What's Don't be silly. <laughs> They've been pushed into this. So who, who's pushed them? Who's pushed so them to do this? Which launched something called a super complaint, mm. which sounds very exciting. I know. Um, yeah, but my it's favourite superhero. <laughs> super complaint. <laughs> you really need to get out. Um, which basically has a certain like regulatory things attached to it, and it means that banks have to mm. respond to it. And, and basically, this voluntary code has come out of that. So it's not the regulator mm. necessarily doing any work. It's which have put loads of effort. In. And there's actually been loads of media attention on this as well, which I think is one area where the finance pages have done really well, yeah. is campaigning a lot for this, contacting banks, getting refunds for victims and highlighting the um, insane kind of double standards that mm. are involved in the system so far. So basically it's been public pressure so far that's led to this happening rather than the government or the regulator cracking down on it. Yeah. And, um, it and also rather than the banks just suddenly becoming these lovely cuddly people yeah, that yeah. are really good. And is there any sign it's likely to become law? 
So I think we have to wait and see how effective this voluntary code is. There's a lot of talk of if the banks use it as a way to dodge paying claims and if it's not as effective as people think or not everyone signs up to it, then there is talk that if this fails, then there might need to be mm. regulatory intervention. But then that does open a whole can of worms because this is, like Tom says, one mm. specific type of scam. And then you have to create rules for all types mm. of scam and everyone has to room it and it kind of becomes a big big pot and I said I'd avoid the Brexit word but I feel like that is going to take a lot of precedence over dealing mm. with scam victims at the moment. So anyway Tom you are always looking to your retirement and planning it out meticulously. Yes. yes. Um, you've got a little countdown chart by your desk days till <laughs> retirement. <laughs> yeah it's got a very very large number on it at the moment. <laughs> um, but you've been looking at figures that show how people are spending their cash once they retire. Yeah I wonder if I'll get retired before Brexit happens. Who knows? <laughs> um, so, yes, um, I, uh, I've been digging through some fascinating Office for National Statistics numbers on how spending patterns change uh, through people's lives. I know that sounds like a slight contradiction, fascinating uh, ONS numbers, but they generally are quite, um, quite, quite interesting. So it's something a little bit different to the kind of thing that I think I usually bring to the podcast potentially more interesting um so we'll be the judge of that (laughs) (laughs) so obviously as we move through our lives how we spend money fluctuates and things that we spend money on um fluctuates and the amount of money that we have as well changes over time so for example if you're a retired household then at the moment the average income per year will be just shy of twenty four thousand pounds if you're a non-retired household then it's higher so just shy of £30,000, but then you have to spend money on different things. So some of this stuff is pretty obvious. So if you're a younger person, your housing costs are rent, or if you're lucky enough to be on a housing ladder, uh, your mortgage costs are likely to be higher than as you move through life and hopefully get towards 65 beyond into retirement. Those costs should dip away as well. So you might still be able to enjoy a decent quality of life in retirement, provided that you've saved enough for your future and paid off all your debts and all the rest of it. But the bits that I've been looking into are some of the specific things that people tend to spend money on when they go past the age of 65 and things that remain a significant cost to people despite going beyond that point and potentially having less income. So the first one was on the cost of heating people's homes. So quite an interesting one from two points of view. So first, I think it's perhaps something that people don't necessarily think about as they're moving from working to retirement, what things are still going to cost the same amount of money and what things are going to increase and decrease. But retired people are um, uniquely exposed to utilities. And this is potentially actually quite interesting if we um, if we do get a Jeremy Corbyn government and they decide to nationalise the utilities. No, we're then... keeping politics out of the <laughs> this week. I didn't, I didn't realise that was... Oh, okay, okay. It's so, a blanket ban. <laughs> so if, in, if, if, somebody like, if something like that did happen, um, then, uh, then you would potentially be having older people who would be more exposed to changes in the prices of energy and fuel and things than, um, than younger people. So on average, the amount that people spend on fuel and water bills and things like that is about £1,100 a year. And that doesn't change throughout your lives and that's not really that surprising I don't think because as you while when you're younger you might have a family who might use a bit more heating and things like that as you get older you might spend a little bit more time inside than you would do outside certainly as you go beyond 75 so that's one of the um, one of the kind of less glamorous costs that stays the same that you need to think about as you're building a retirement plan the next one is cigarettes and alcohol well, it increases. So, it, it, so uh, the over 65 to 74 age bracket 
are among the highest spenders, not just relative to incomes, but overall, on average, among the highest spenders on fags and booze in this is the my kind of retirement entire, entire country. Now, you can there are many reasons why that might be the case. So let me just pull out the number. Um, so, uh, on average, a 65 to 74 year old spends £10.60 per week, or £550 per year on alcoholic drinks. Uh, £3 per week uh, on cigarettes versus £2.50 per week for someone who's aged 30 to 49. So a little bit more on uh, on fags, roughly the same on booze as well. So I had a quick look around some supermarkets. That'll buy you a, a decent bottle of wine for £10.60. I yeah, believe that's the case. Or four bottles of the wine that Ryan drinks. <laughs> yeah, <I'm very> happy, <laughs> well, yeah. I think two four packs of Stella might be more. Yeah, well, uh, I'm a value investor, so I like to uh, keep that going <laughs> through my purchase of alcohol. Yeah, so, so I would imagine the the higher spend on cigarettes is that because typically smoking is dying off as in younger people aren't smoking as much so dying off yeah interesting <laughs> interesting so i think you're there'll be a combination of things sort of maybe younger people are less likely to to smoke and there's an older generation who are who are, who are more likely to be smokers you might also have a little bit of people when they have kids give up smoking and maybe when they get older might take it up Again, I've just made up. That might not be the case. Um, I think there's all sorts of things that will go into into these uh, into these statistics. But I certainly don't think when when uh, when Liam Gallagher was singing about cigarettes and alcohol and looking for some action, he wasn't necessarily thinking about people aged 65 to 74 <laughs> boozing it up and smoking it up in their in their homes in their well heated homes. Exactly, very well heated. <laughs> uh, and it's not just about um, heating your homes and getting drunk and smoking yourself away. Uh, package holidays, rather unsurprisingly, are a big spending item for um, 65 to 74. You also spend far more. So once you've just passed that state pension age point, people spend far more on package holidays. So about £1,700 a year on average. Um, for anyone who's interested, I'm not sure if either of you are package holiday type people, but that will buy you uh, two people, an all-inclusive four-star, seven-day stay in the Canary Islands. I'll take that. Wow, I mean that's not bad. Or, or you could, or if you don't like like okay. box one, okay. you could have a seven-night cruise around Spain and Portugal and Guernsey. I'm not sure why Guernsey was in there as part of it. It must just be kind of okay. part of the route. It's, it's very nice, very nice place. Also, what I think about with that that statistic around holidays is mm. not so much what you can buy; it's the amount of holiday. If I if I use my parents as a judge. Then it's three or four <laughs> yeah. foreign holidays, but also the ability when they're flexible is to go very late and get cheap deals. And so it's an, a, I imagine the statistics will show that they also have more holidays yeah. than mm. one very nice holiday. Yeah, yeah. And what, one of the things worth pointing out in that is that it, that's that that, that um, those statistics purely look at package holidays, and I think there's potentially. Uh, an age thing there where older people might be more likely to go on a holiday where it's all inclusive package going on a cruise and things like that whereas I think younger people tend to now kind of pick a mix mix. they'll go on Airbnb trips and things like that so I don't think it's necessarily suggesting that older people are spending way more than younger people on holidays it might just be a different type of holiday that they're that they're going for um, and, and there may be a strong correlation between the all-inclusive and the amount of booze they're drinking as well which is you just, you just <laughs> talked is, about earlier having having been on one or two all-inclusive holidays in my time i can i can testify to the fact that there are plenty of people who are leathery and a little bit grayer and a little bit drunk by the side of the pool as well that's and how I you think, get your money back that's and how I, you make it worth it absolutely and i think that should be embraced as well um but the, the reason that i kind of went through these stats and was thinking about it was because quite often 
often, um, so I, I write a column every week for, for Shares magazine and we get questions coming, loads of questions actually. It's really, it's really interesting. And I quite often get asked, um, what is the right amount of money to have for your retirement? And I, and I usually think that's, that's it's, 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 it, I can understand why people want that kind of certainty, just give me a number and then that's all I'll need. But it's not the way that it works for most people. It's a people. bit like saying, how much income do I need now as someone in my mid-30s? It's exactly. so subjective to where you live and the lifestyle you want to lead yeah, and if yeah. you've got children and all of those things. Yeah, so you need, it's, 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 it's very obvious, but it's thinking of your retirement as a budget and so thinking of the things that are going to always cost you money, so something like fuel bills, utilities. If you've still got mortgage costs, I think younger people increasingly will have... Uh, outstanding mortgages or even still be renting as they get into certainly into the into the 50s and even into the 60s and then thinking about the things that are potentially flexible costs but the things that you want to do so if you like having a drink if you like smoking if you like going on holidays then think about how whether you want to continue doing those things into old age and then plan a retirement strategy around that Absolutely. I mean, in my back in the day when I was a financial advisor, and when you talk about advisors in terms of how they plan for retirement, yeah. I mean, they will absolutely separate out essential spend and non-essential yeah. spend, and yeah. so you cover your essential spend um, as well as you possibly can, and then the money left over is available for the non non-essential. But of course, as we all know, we all have a very different definition as to what mm. is essential and non-essential. Yeah. I believe that my five holidays a year are absolutely essential. <laughs> yeah. uh, we agree with you and we're very happy when you're on those holidays. <laughs> what about you, Ryan? Have you got any, any retirement dreams? Retirement yeah. dream. Just, uh, just retiring probably at any point? To oh. probably travel around the world watching England play cricket would be very nice. It would, nice. It would mean you, you, you were permanently in the summer. That would be great. Mm, that does sound good. I mean, I don't like cricket, but I'm sold on the permanent summer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Are you going to any of the World Cup games? First game, yeah, absolutely. England, England, South Africa. Right, I will not have this cricket chat on podcast just because Dan's <laughs> off. So, Ryan, fund managers saying sorry is not a common occurrence, but Terry mm. Smith last week apologised to investors and he's taken a step back from managing his Fundsmith Emerging Equities Investment Trust after five years. So, he Terry Smith is obviously very well known for his flagship fund um, and this Emerging Equities Fund was a bit of a departure from what he normally does. So, is it a sign that managers can't change their style or their spots? Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, I, I would argue it's very difficult for, for managers uh, to transfer a set of skills that they have where they're very focused investing in one particular way, maybe in one particular market. I think this is really good evidence that they don't always, uh, they're not always able to move that to another market and be consistently successful. I think when you look at the uh, this trust, he does invest in the same way, a very similar way, but I think what it's showing for me is it's not compatible with that particular market. Um, I mean, it's it's a trust, say, investing in emerging market equities. It has not performed uh, anywhere near as well as the flagship Fundsmith Trust. In fact, uh, to, to use an appalling pun, um, this trust is known as feet, and I think it's fair to say the performance has been a little bit smelly. Um, and I apologise <laughs> wow. for that. I've been working on that for two days. <laughs> did, you know, did you know that I was going to be hosting this week? Is that why? I, don't, I feel like if Dan was here, that wouldn't have... No, it, wouldn't that, have it wouldn't have got through <laughs> editorial control, but we've, sli we've slipped After it in. After two days, that's the best you yep. could come up with. <laughs> I'm a, yeah, I'm afraid it is. Uh, it is. Um, but yeah, certainly uh, the performance has not, uh, has not transferred across... Um, so how is the how's the trust compared to its peer group? Because it's obviously not fair to compare it to the flagship fund because it's a different market and emerging markets have had a very different run yeah. of it. So how how is it compared to others that are doing similar? Yeah, I mean it's it, it, in it, in its peer group uh, and against its benchmark, it's not doing 
too well. Uh, but actually, when you look at the trust and you look at how it's invested, it actually doesn't really come as much of a surprise. Uh, and so the, the, the trust today is about 70% invest, invested in consumer staple stocks. So they're defensive stocks that typically do well when the market's sold off. If you think about the last five years, the market's done very, very well and has really been driven by technology companies and the emerging growth of China. Uh, and this trust has just about zero exposure to that area. So it's it's not a surprise that it's underperformed, but I think mm. what it shows is investors need to be very careful about uh, where they invest, not buying an investment simply because of who the named manager mm. is, mm. but look beneath the bonnet, understand how it's positioned, and think about when it should do well and should do badly. I could easily argue it actually shouldn't have done very well over the last few years, given its positioning, and therefore it's not a surprise to me that it's underperformed. If we get a sell-off, it could well perform quite well against its peers. But you have to do the work and get underneath the bonnet to really see how it's positioned. And how do we feel about fund managers saying sorry? We obviously had Neil Woodford doing that, I think it was last year, a kind of public video apology to his investors, and now Terry Smith has done it. Is this a trend? Do you think it's good that they admit where they got it wrong? Well, we like hum- we like uh, humility as a as a sk- as a, a characteristic in in fund managers. So saying sorry, we think is a good thing. Uh, I don't think we see it often enough. But also, there's a bigger point here, which is about managing expectations around what performance should be expected, uh, and. And again, that comes down to understanding how the fund invests. So we would like to think a manager who invests like this should be very clear in saying, if the market mm. absolutely flies and it's, a, and it's a growth market, we won't do very well. Uh, and if it, it's a different type of market, we may do well. And I think all fund managers could probably be better at being clearer about what type of market suits them and what type of market doesn't, rather than almost pretending that everything mm. will do well regardless mm. of what's going on, because that's just not reality. And so if you're still an investor in his trust, I guess you'd be asking whether you should too be ditching the trust or whether you should stick with it under the new management. Mm. Well, the new management is not really new management. Mm. Uh, the, the two managers, uh, Michael O'Brien and Sandeep Patodia, uh, have both been involved and working on the trust for the last five years. So I expect to see just about no change to the holdings uh, and, and really no change to the style at all. Um, so it's it, for me, it's continuity. If you've invested in the trust, you understand how it's invested, um, then that's unlikely to change going forwards. Uh, one thing that has changed is they have also recognised that the fees are too expensive on this trust. Uh, and so they've cut them from 1.25% to 1%. That is a positive move, but in my book, the, the trust is still too expensive. It's still at the more expensive end of the peer group. But if um, if the managers are staying, the style's going to stay the same, what effect does it actually have mm. of Terry Smith stepping back then? Uh, I, arguably, I would say not that much, uh, really. I think this is this is a case of, of, of Terry Smith focusing on the, the flagship mm. Fundsmith Trust and also having two managers and enabling them almost to promote those managers and push them forward. If you remember last year, Terry Smith launched this Smithson Trust, uh, and he's not the name manager on that trust either. So this is not the first time uh, that we're seeing this. Uh, I think it's a it's a way of progressing other members of the Fundsmith business and, and give them a higher profile. 
to an element of succession planning. I think, yeah, that's probably a good way to describe it. Yeah. So, so if someone was invested within that trust before he stepped back, there would be no change as far as their investment position was concerned. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been in to meet Michael and Sandy yet, um, but I would expect, given the fact they've been working on it for five years and have been heavily involved in the stock selection Mm. up to now, I'd be amazed if there was much change in the underlying positioning. And you weren't a big fan of this trust before, it's fair to say. Well, I mean, it's a case of thinking about what type of emerging market exposure we wanted. uh, And we thought markets would perform quite well, and therefore we wanted more of a growth bias. So we wanted exposure to technology, to China, to the faster growing areas of the market. Now, if that view changes and we become very negative on emerging markets and we look to protect capital, this may be a style that comes into favour. But for the last few years, it's not been how we viewed the market would likely behave. Fund managers who say sorry. I'm quite, uh, I'm quite up for tracking that. That's so me. far, I, I can only think of two. So it's quite, quite a small tracking two, at the moment. Two, two in history you've ever said sorry. But actually, they Maybe. are the two probably mm. most household names, Terry Smith and, and Neil Woodford. Yeah. They're the yeah. only fund managers my husband's heard of, and he doesn't know anything about investment management. So <laughs> if they're willing to say sorry, maybe some of the others should. I, I think to be fair to other managers, I think more of them do say sorry mm. for performance, but a lot of it is written in the annual report and so on, which doesn't get as high a coverage and profile as these two managers in Woodford and Smith that you just mentioned. Um, so I think it's big news when they say sorry, but I, I, to be fair to other managers, I think there's lots of very good but also very humble managers out there that, that are very disappointed when they don't deliver for their investors. Okay, that's a fair point. Yeah, right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you very much for listening. I've very much enjoyed my stint as Dan Coatsworth this week. How now do you, you think- can get back in your cupboard again <laughs> until one of us is off on holiday. Oh, right. Okay, so you feel like it's gone really well. <laughs> what was your highlight? Uh, thinking about Dan being back next week. <laughs> Unbelievable. Next time, I might think of not doing it, and then I will just do it anyway. Um, as ever, you can send any thoughts or ideas you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Thank you to Ryan. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you to Laura. Thank you. And thank you most of all for listening. Dan will be back next week. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.